Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. If you are familiar with the show, you know that I usually invite on a creative in horror. They choose a single movie they love and we chat about it for an hour or so. This week, we're sort of launching a kind of side project, a recurring series that will pop up every once in a while. <laughs> and it's called Getting Hammered with Hammer, wherein myself and co-host Paul Farrell will sit down with a Hammer film and apply a drinking game of sorts to it. We'll tweet out which movie and what the alcohol of choice is before each film, and then we'll all just get fairly messed up while watching some classic horror together. Paul! How yeah. the hell did you get mixed up in this? Uh, please, tell us a bit about your experience with Hammer, and uh, uh, also, if you get a second, tell us about your Hammer column, a Bloody Disgusting, before we launch into this episode proper. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, so, Hammer, I, you know, I recently, recently, probably in the last like year or two, actually discovered Hammer, so I'm... It's fairly new in my world, but it's a, a topic and a studio that I've immediately fallen in love with and become a little bit obsessed by. Um, and for some of it, uh, and one of the reasons I'm probably here with you today, is uh, you were one of the people who helped sort of shepherd me uh, in my discovery towards Hammer, recommending things. I think the first thing you recommended to me was the Frankenstein franchise, in fact, Yes. Um, and it was, even though I had seen a handful of Hammer movies before that, it was watching that franchise in order that really solidified um, what I loved about what Hammer did and the fact that I wanted to delve more deeply into their catalog. Um, so, yeah, and uh, we've been talking about it for a while. And, uh, you know, this kind of evolved organically from that. Um, as did the uh, column you mentioned uh, at Blade Disgusting. Um, actually, it started as just sort of a offhanded tweet where I was kind of like, if I did this, would anyone care? And uh, a couple people sort of suggested they would, and that bolstered me enough to actually pitch it. Um, and it basically, I select a film uh, from Hammer's repertoire that Scream Factory has released, because if you don't already know, Scream Factory is currently... Uh, putting out um, a lot of Hammer's catalog and in great restored editions with uh, stacked special features. Um, and I wanted to highlight them and get them in front of more people's eyes because some of these titles are famous, but some of them are not. and Or not famous amongst horror fans that I think would be really you know impressed by them. Um, so I kind of select a movie um, and then I explore the context of when it was made because the history of Hammer Studios a lot of times is just as interesting, if not more interesting than the movies themselves. Um, and then I kind of review the movie um, and talk about um, the special features on the disc and sort of wrap it all up. So it's uh, kind of a review as well as a look at where the film fits in in Hammer's canon and its impact on the studio at large. Nice. Very cool. And, you know, I've read all of the ones that have gone up so far. I believe another one is going up this week. Well, uh, I say this week. I don't know what it'll be in relation to this episode <laughs> dropping. Sure. But, uh, but I've loved them all. So listeners out there, definitely make certain to check that out. And before we dive in, just to provide a bit of uh, <laughs> backstory about how this uh, podcast came about, um, back when this show first started, it wasn't just a podcast. It was also a video show with myself and uh, a couple of other guys. And it was not good. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. 
you know, we would uh, we would film three videos a week, and we just sort of uh, pitched ideas and cast about blindly for things to chat about. And <laughs> one week, I'd gotten the silly idea to do a drinking game. Uh, we would be doing this on camera. And being a Hammer fan and kind of a fan of wordplay and silly puns, I'd put Hammer and Hammered together and uh, kapow! And I pitched this idea, and Paul, I got crickets. <laughs> Nothing. No Hard to believe. Action. Yeah, pretty sure everybody <laughs> hated it. And, uh, you know, that version of the show eventually ended and Scream Addicts uh, became what it became. But my idea, I will say, was validated a bit about a year or so after that. I was uh, I was invited to catch a movie after hours at the uh, movie theater I'd once worked at by a pal. Uh, a guy still worked there. Uh, shout out to one Mr. Brammer out there if he listens. And he told me that one of my old co-hosts was going to be doing this fun movie watching event called, wait for it, Getting Hammered with Hammer. And I had my idea repeated back to me, and I was like, fine, cool, you know, whatever. At least I know the idea has some worth. So I have wanted to do this for years, but I just never really had the opportunity. And now, you know, I still don't know if this is going to work. I think it'll be fun, but as a side project, we're kind of going to slide it into the rest of the uh, oh, the Screamatics episodes that goes up. Hopefully, you know, it'll, it'll work for people. I, I just, look, in the midst of this damn pandemic, I figure, why not try something like this? You know what I mean? Oh, so, I totally get it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and like I said, I think more people, if this serves as any sort of gateway for people who, like, haven't dived into horror or hammer horror yet, um, and, you know, getting drunk helps that, you know, go down a little bit easier, let, let's go for it. And it kind of amuses me, too, the <laughs> idea of watching these classy, classic horror movies, but oh, also yeah. getting just sloppy drunk while watching Oh, absolutely. Just... <laughs> and maybe it'll only ever be the two of us. Maybe we'll invite on it's guests. Okay. We'll we'll see. But for now, we're going to start at the very beginning with 1957's Curse of Frankenstein. And, hey, sure, maybe we should be starting with, like, the Quatermass Experiment or uh, uh, X the Unknown. But, uh, but come on. No, we start with The Curse of Frankenstein, which well and truly began the era of Hammer Horror. Paul, this is your movie, and as such, you chose the alcohol and the drinking game rules. And, you know, the next time we do this, we'll do Horror of Dracula, I'll choose the drinking rules, and we'll pretty much go down the line and hit as many of the films as we can. So, Paul, when we were talking about this, I think I said the only alcohol that I can't really stand is beer. You know, mixed drinks, sure. Shots, even better. Uh, But I just, I can't stand beer. I have like this borderline physical reaction to beer. I I despise it. I don't know why. I've tried every single beer there is to try out there. I went to college. I I made the rounds. I tried. I searched. I did my damnedest to find even a single beer that tasted anything other than like, you know, horse piss to me. And I could not find even one. Beer and I are sworn enemies. So anyway, which alcohol did you wind up choosing for this episode? Well, I chose beer, Jinx. <laughs> you went with beer. I went with beer. Um, Thanks, I'm a beer. I'm a beer guy. Uh, not gonna lie. Um, big fan of beer, uh, like all kinds. I think you and I are very uh, opposite when it comes to drinks, which is going to make this show real interesting because I feel like I'm going to be uh, decidedly punished for this decision. Oh, I'm hurt. Uh, I chose uh, Stone IPA, uh, the Stone Brewing Company. They make some of my favorite beers. Uh, arrogant bastard ale and um, uh, fear movie lions uh, they make a lot of great beer um, but i chose stone ipa for this particular episode just feel like it's a classy beer uh, you know you talk about it's classy movie it's 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 rich it's it's tasty um, but you know at the same time it it it, it 
it gets the job done, you know? So I, I thought this would be the appropriate beverage of choice uh, for the curse of Frankenstein. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see how it goes for you. I mean, it doesn't seem like you have much of a choice at this point. So I don't. I don't. Um, which is fine, because like I said, when we hit up uh, Dracula, I'm sure I'm going to be punished. Because just as you're not a fan of beer, I'm not a big fan of things like shots and hard alcohol. I, I stick more to the easier stuff. So that will, I assume that particular episode will be uh, uh, pretty dangerous for me. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the results of that are. <laughs> Um, All right, so we have Stone IPA, we have The Curse of Frankenstein. Now, can you tell me, because uh, you haven't told me yet, uh, this is this is a surprise that's coming, but also tell the listeners at home, what exactly are going to be the drinking game rules when it comes to Curse and Stone IPA? Sure, so I have a set of rules that um, I'm going to text to you, so that way you can reference them throughout, but of course I'll read them out loud now. Um, so we're going to be drinking uh, when certain things happen. Uh, so whenever I'm going to list them all out now for you. So whenever two people exchange serious looks or glances, we have to take oh. a drink. Holy shit. Um, oh yeah. Paul, this uh, is a hammer film. Yep. Yeah. Uh, whenever characters pace while pontificating, <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, speaking about whatever topic is happening. So whenever they're pacing around and, and sort of monologuing, I don't know if uh, I have enough beer. Uh, drink when someone else takes or pours a drink. That's a, that's a good one for hammer movies because people are constantly, uh, pouring and drinking. Um, you have to drink whenever Elizabeth asks about the laboratory. <laughs> oh, holy shit. Oh, I know for a fact I don't have enough beer on hand. I bought a six pack. I thought that would cover it. Um, and then, uh, the two, I haven't even listed the big one yet. Drink whenever someone says Victor. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, this one's pretty simple, and it, I just wanted a themed one. Drink whenever something dead is reanimated. So that's actually not that bad when you think yeah, about it's, it. Yeah, um, it's like, but it's a fun one because it's... It's a puppy and a Christopher Lee. Spoiler alert. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, I just texted you a picture like of my screen with the rules written on it, so... That way you can reference them in case you forget. Um, I will try to remember. Um, I had to remove a couple of rules because uh, watching a, uh, doing a commentary like this, we don't have sound. And there were a couple of things that were dependent on the soundtrack. So you actually kind of lucked out if you think about it. Yeah, I feel lucky. I feel lucky. Oh, God. Okay. All right. So uh, if you are listening at home, what we're going to do, whether have a DVD, a Blu-ray, uh, certainly not here in the States, you don't have a Blu-ray, which is bullshit, but in case you have a Blu-ray from other territories, uh, or if you're just streaming it from, like, uh, say, Amazon Prime, what we need you to do is go to the very first frame of the movie, where it says Warner Brothers, pause it, we're going to do a countdown, and we're all going to press play together. Uh, but first, let's grab our Stone IPA or whatever you're drinking at home. Let's go ahead and pop it open. I'm going to pop mine open, like, right next to the mic. I'm doing it. Ready? Yep. In three, two. Okay. We're here. We're doing so it. It's, um, oh, God, it smells even. Jesus. It smells right. like efficiency, man, is what, what you're actually referring to. That's fine. I, I don't, I don't, no, sir. Oh, yeah. Goes down smooth. <laughs> All right. So. Everyone press play on, ah, uh, hell, what should we do? Like, count of three, like, three, two, one, and then press play. 
Do we yeah, press play on good. one? Do we press play on, ah, uh, this is all going wrong. All right, everyone. Let's press play in three, two, one. All right, here we are. We have the uh, the opening scrawl here. Paul, do you want to read this? Read it out loud. Uh, more than 100 years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become legend. The legend is still told with horror the world over. It is the legend of... Wait for it. Wait for it. I read it too fast. <laughs> the Curse of Frankenstein. Yes. Was that good? Did I do it? That was great. Job. Okay, good. Just making well, sure. So here we go. Starring Peter, Peter Cushing. Cushing. One of his uh, first, if not the first, like starring role in a movie for him, right? This well, movie? It, really, the lead into the movie was them saying The Legend of the Curse of Frankenstein. That is interesting. Would that be a better or worse title? I'm going to go with worse. I think that's too convoluted. Yeah, fair enough. I uh, like I like the title, Curse of Frank. I mean, you know, Hammer loves to use the word curse. The blank of blank. That's pretty yeah. much the, uh, the template. It's like Mad Libs. Yeah, exactly. Except um, for Dracula. Weirdly enough, in the UK, Dracula is just called Dracula. It took us here in the States to actually throw the horror of in front horror of it. Like, Dracula. guys, keep your, keep your naming scheme. Come on. Well, I kind of like them having different like I, I like them adding words to the title because it differentiates them a bit more and it it also like you know this version of frankenstein is a lot more uh, not a lot more it's just a, you know the original frankenstein is focused on sort of the monster and it it's not as introspective to the character of the doctor in in the same ways uh or as deeply felt so i think calling it the curse sort of ties into the fact that like his drive and his desire and his intelligence is almost like a curse for him that he's that he can't ever escape this thing that he's driven to do so i think the title sort of serves what the movie's about better yeah fair enough i dig that and i do love cushing's uh cushing's frankenstein i think it's just absolutely brilliant the frankenstein okay. cycle is actually my favorite hammer franchise i know that uh I don't know. A lot of people seem to love the Dracula series. I think by virtue of the fact that maybe arguably the most iconic figure in all of Hammer Horror is Christopher Lee's Dracula. And yet, I hate to say it, even though there are some absolute gems in that series, it's kind of, you know, it's hit and miss. They're not all gems. Well, I Uh, I definitely think the Frankenstein series is much stronger. Like each, all of the films individually are stronger films than the Dracula movies. But I also think the Dracula movies are more fun and they play more like a like a slasher, like they're kind of more of a modern day slasher structure um, than the Frankenstein movies, which are more like emotional and intense and uh, much darker in terms of their thematics. So I think the Dracula films just kind of probably are more fun to revisit for some people. Yeah, I guess I you know I I'm a huge Hammer nerd. I adore the films, but. You know, I got to tell you, I don't often reach for Prince of Darkness. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't often reach for uh, Satanic Rites. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Horror of Dracula is great. Uh, the Brides great. of Dracula actually is one of my two favorite Hammer horrors. Uh, it's tied with Frankenstein Created Woman. Uh, and I hate to say that because, you know, all respect to Christopher Lee, but my favorite Dracula movie from Hammer doesn't actually have Christopher Lee in it. Hmm. Yeah, right. that is, um, but it has Cushing. There's that. 
Cushing is great. I do love his Van Helsing. All right, so we see the guys entering here. I like the lighting in a lot of these, like, every time Hammer gives us a scene that takes place in, like, a dungeon or a jail cell, there's always really interesting depth of field employed with, like, the lighting and and the sets. Um, Like, right here, I really like how it sort of feels flattened, like, matte almost, but he's still kind of in the background and there's like a light behind that doorway. And then when he gets up, there's sort of a, an increased up the field there. I think this is something that Terrence Fisher does really well. Uh, how he employs lighting in these movies with very little budget and confined sets that they kept having to reuse. I feel like he does a really good job of reinventing places that we've seen before to make them feel new and dynamic. I agree. Yeah, I, I love how atmospheric this film is, just right from the start. You know, these films, all of the Hammers, I mean, they are a far cry from the black and white Universal films, but they're every bit as gothic. Oh, and... uh, they exchange a serious look. Damn we it. Gotta... All right, here we go. <laughs> so wait, wait, wait a second. Are we taking a sip? Are we taking a swig? What's, what's the deal here? Uh, can you define the difference between a sip and a swig for me before I answer that question? Uh, okay, a sip, you should be able to just, uh, bolt right down. A gulp, I'm thinking you have to, like, uh, or rather, I don't know. Uh, how, how much two, two sips and a do? swig? Two swigs and a gulp? Yeah, so, something like that, sure. So, what do you think, a swig? I think a swig's fair. Okay, uh, yeah, okay, so. Now he's pontificating. <laughs> oh, but he's God. Not, but he's not pacing, so it maybe maybe a sip on that one. God. Pacing would be a swig, pontificating would be a sip. <laughs> oh God, there's like an aftertaste to it too, Paul. Oh, it burns in the back of my throat. Oh, good. Uh, uh, wait, did I have to drink again? Did you say? I mean, no, I think... you're good. Okay. Just keep keep going. Just keep drinking. You're fine. <laughs> oh God! Oh, that is that is terrible. I like this kid's performance. He's only in the movie for a few minutes, but I thought he did a good job. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm still with the beer here. Um, yeah, little Lord Frankenstein here. Uh, like who who the hell is this kid actor? He looks like a 45 year old child. Yeah, that's why I like him. He looks he looks oh uh, you know, like the right person for the job there. I mean, they might as uh, well have just little, had Cushing walk on his knees. Isn't the little girl there? Uh, uh, Hazel Quartz. Yes, like uh, daughter. Something? Little. Oh, really? Like in real life? Nah, I honestly have no idea. I know she's playing little Elizabeth, but... Yeah. That's, I can just tell. Look, her, look at the look I think that's her daughter life. Yeah. He's such so a cool dick. little bit of trivia for this commentary. See, I, I, I added something to this. I feel good about it. The taste is still in the back of my throat. How the hell does oh. that even happen? Oh, this it's kind of like, it's pervasive. The taste is pervasive like Frankenstein's desire to Stop. reanimate life. Stop. Though, oh. I'm tying it in. Look at that hat. That is a big <laughs> hat. I, don't, I just don't think it's necessary. Do you notice, well, I'm jumping ahead, but isn't it a little weird that uh, Victor Frankenstein ages like 30 years, but his tutor doesn't at all? Is like... <laughs> looks the same age yeah how old the whole is paul meant to be here he just grays up a little bit over the course he of grays the up a little bit but but realistically he'd be the greatest like he'd be the best looking aged man of all time because 30 years have got to pass 
He's like the Brad Pitt of the Victorian era. Just sure. son of a bitch. Or the Paul Rudd, maybe. Yeah, I'll probably even or better, Paul, yeah. You know. I feel like Paul Rudd would be decent in a, like a modern Hammer horror film. Yeah, I mean, um, I saw Paul Rudd in a horror movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called uh, Halloween 6. Yep. It's Michael Myers. No, I know you'd seen it. Yep, yeah. Um, <laughs> He's fantastic in that. Hey, I'm not going to knock that movie. I think yeah. his performance is great. Yeah, one of my single favorite best bits of performance in the entire franchise in that movie. Do you remember what it is? Because I think you and I talked about it before. What? Hit, hit, what line or what scene? It's the moment where he is in the hallway. He's trying to free Kara uh, Strode. He is trying to break open the door with like this fire extinguisher. And as he's doing it, it's Michael Myers just bops out of his room. He's like a stone's throw away. And you see Paul Rudd stop and he turns and he sees him. And Michael starts towards him and he has this insane reaction, which is not to scream or you know not to look terrified he lets out like this exasperated laugh and it's probably one of the most real moments i've ever seen in any horror movie and i love it i love that moment uh it makes yeah. the entire film for me theatrical cut producer's cut doesn't matter as long as it has that moment in it i'm happy <laughs> i'm a producer's cut fan personally that's my that's my go-to it's a good one. Oh, he's shaving Hey, edit point right here. Seth, uh, I may need to lift this out if you don't mind terribly. I had a bit of an issue, Paul, when I was starting the movie. It leapt ahead for a moment. I just want to make certain that you and I are close to being synced here. Uh, oh, okay. Are they in the laboratory? Yes. I'm at, I can pause it and tell you what time I'm at. Okay. Uh, is he, what are they doing on screen right now? Is um, So Paul is in the background sort of messing around with something. Victor's in the foreground next to a tank. With a okay. do- with the dog in it, perfect. I'm there. I have to be. Is he? Did it just start there? Uh, he just, yeah. Just he just held there. his hands out as though yep. to his hold. Yeah. His okay. He's up. about to pull a lever. Yep. And he's pulling it. Okay. I might. I might be like one second behind you. Okay. We're close. Right after you said pulling it. <laughs> you want me to fast forward a minute? No. You know what? I, I, I think this will be fun. I think I'm just okay. going to leave all of this in. Yeah, we're good. Uh, folks at home, you're going to be a little lost, <laughs> probably. <laughs> just leave it in. Hey, look, I laboratory. You know, I, this good. is what I love about Hammer 2. You give me a laboratory with, uh, one, call it a laboratory. Two, mm-hmm. give me spinning things. Three, give me bubbling liquids, and I'm just, I'm grinning ear to ear. Like, I Absolutely. It makes me happy. It's the only way to laboratory. Um, well, I know, and it just speaks to their... The the endless, boundless capability for Hammer to create things that feel big with almost no resources um, compared to the bigger studios that were operating. And then they make a movie that ends up... What did this make? Like 70 times its budget or something? It was... For a long time, wasn't it the most successful... British horror film of all time based on its budget to what it actually brought in. Oh, wow. That sounds right. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I know it made, it made millions on a like under, I think it was like a hundred to 200,000 pounds in the end. I think originally reported it was like under a hundred thousand pounds though. Um, and then it made millions of, of, uh, of pounds in Britain and, and dollars over here and worldwide. So it's like, 
crazy successful um and it really set the stage for what they were going to do and it's even though for all of the uh critical you know complaints about it that it was gratuitous and gory and you know the death of horror because you know every every generation there's a shift and then people complain about that shift but it's so classy and it it, it does it in such a interesting thoughtful way um that i don't think people give it enough credit um, especially back then, but even now, you know, it, it, I feel these movies get talked about, but I don't think they come up as often as I'd like to hear them come up. My puppy. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I agree. But I have to wonder if part of that is simply down to availability. You know, you we have sure. never been too long without some sort of edition of... Uh, a Universal Monsters movie coming out. You know, we we get individual releases on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray. We get box sets. We get movies that are meant to revive those very titles. And as a result, we get an entire new, like, you know, influx of releases or special editions with new bonus features. We're never too far out from seeing Universal putting something out related to Dracula, oh. Frankenstein, The Wolfman, all of those. Uh-oh. We're going to take several drinks. Something just got reanimated. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, serious glances were exchanged. So, hold on. Well, on... Um... All right. Two. Uh, Paul is, uh, he's definitely pontificating. <laughs> he, uh, he, he walked is a few steps and then sat down. Yeah. He uh, said, oh, with the, the heartbeats to circulate. See if we can delay, blah, blah, blah. See that? There you go. He's, he's not pacing, but I feel like he's. He damn well isn't he's pacing. Pace, oh, he's definitely pacing. Look he at him. Not. Look at I him go. That, he just no. leaned over. And he's got a drink. They both have drinks. I think that's two drinks right nobody's, there. So nobody's, wait. Nobody's taking a drink yet. Just, they both are holding alcoholic beverages right Was that now. the rule? That, was that the rule? That's all the rules. Drink when. I will read you a rule I have texted you. Drink when someone takes or pours a drink. Okay. I haven't seen any pouring, I haven't seen any drinking. Ah, son of a bitch. Both of those drinks, he just took one, but both of those drinks had to be poured to be held. So I think we can. Nope. Nope. It's got to be fur. I'm, I'm all about sticking to the rules here. Jesus, this is foul. So good. It'll grow on you. No, it won't. Unless it's like some sort of damn fungus, which with that taste, it might damn well be. Uh, God, I I feel like he just paced forward and is. That's not a pace. He stepped forward. He is pacing right now. Bullshit. (laughs) No. No. I mean, 90% of what Peter Cushing does in this film is pace. I'm, I'm just pointing he's that walking. out. He's walking. He's walking around. He's moving about the room. You know what I love about Hammer is they're able to, to take <laughs> long, long swaths of just monologues and dialogue bits where not much action is occurring um, and make it fascinating and compelling because of the performance, like because of the actors doing it. Um, and I think like the best directors in Hammer's stables, like know to ju- when to hold a camera on a great actor. God, somebody and... did pour a damn drink, son of a bitch. Right there, right there. Oh God Almighty, Paul! Damn it! I used to think I was an alcoholic. Now I'm not so sure. Alcoholics like beer, do they not? No, you love beer. You don't love beer. That's oh. I mean, that's a key component of this. So do you hold with the, uh, you know, a lot of film historians credit this movie with sort of resurrecting the horror genre in its day um, because of its decline in popularity. Do you do you view it as that? Do you see this as like a resurrection of horror and do you see it as an, like a rebirth of horror? 
You know, it's funny that you ask that because I, when we look back at that era, we don't really know unless we were there, right? But even then, sure. I feel like, you know, genre. Ah, oh, God, somebody took a drink. Hang on. Yeah. Oh God, they put and he poured one too. <laughs> I saw nothing. No. Oh God, he reached no, 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 Peter. Peter, no. <laughs> Uh, God, here we go. Good Lord. This is bad. You don't need to drink. Cut away before. My are pretty cruel. I didn't realize this going in. I'm not going to lie. Anyway, question. You know, I I think that genre historians or people who write about film, you know, I think it's comforting to be able to put things into little boxes. Things die. Things resurrect. Uh, the genre is cyclical, so on and so forth. And yeah, you know, like having lived through one of the eras that people seem to write about a lot, you know, the 90s, everyone wants to ascribe like the rebirth of horror to Scream. Uh, and yeah. certainly, I mean, you can't discount the fact that Scream was a slasher movie that made over $100 million and it kickstarted like that neo slasher wave. And yet, you know, if you look at the first six years of the 90s, horror was not dead. There were plenty of horror movies coming out. There were plenty of successful horror movies coming out. Maybe nothing on par with Scream, but holy shit, how many horror movies do you know that typically make $100 million anyway? So I can't honestly say, looking back at like the era of Hammer's Rise, that it did sort of allow for a rebirth of the genre, because certainly there were plenty of other genre films coming out at the same time. If there was any sort of resurgence happening, then surely it was just simply with those classic monsters, right? You know, when was the last time that somebody had done a Frankenstein film before this that wasn't, you know, a a cheap knockoff of like a universal film, you know? So maybe in that regard, perhaps, but otherwise, hell, I don't know. Oh, there is an Amber Alert in my area. That's sad. Oh, no. I hear it. That is sad. The taste taste of silence is still there. It's so, fine. Uh, You're fine. Don't whine about it. No, it's this. This is going to be the bulk of the episode, sir. We're, we're going to be resurrected. That's fine. And I'm going to be pissed. I will support you. I will get you through this. We'll we'll do it together. It's going to be okay. Um, well, I think you know. I think part of it is what studios are willing to invest in, because I think sometimes people ascribe horror's life or death by way of what like money is being pumped into horror always is there right whether or not studios are funding it or it's getting a lot of attention horror is alive and well and sometimes when it's getting the least amount of attention is when it's the most interesting but i think that i do think what this movie did was brought horror back into a place where studios believed that oh this is a money-making venture we can invest in this which is sort of a cold calculated way of looking at something I love, but when something's invested in, then we get more of it. So like what scream did was it convinced studios to invest a lot of money in slashers, which hadn't been done in a while. Slashers still existed before that, um, but they weren't getting budgets. So now we had a whole rash of decently budgeted, well-cast slasher films you know, that we all sort of look to and call scream knockoffs when the reality is most of them are nothing like scream, (laughs) you know, like you hear that urban legend. You're not a stitch on scream. Jinx. First off, you were not going to slander urban legend in front with me on the, on the line here. This is not, this could devolve very quickly because I am, I am an urban legend. Come on. I'll fight you. I don't care. I'll fight all you. 
here's what we'll say. Ryan Lysa and I are in, in the same boat. We're, we're, he's a good guy. Um, but, but urban legend, whether you like it or hate it is nothing like screen. They're, they're not similar films, but it's called the screen knockoff because the general public, that's all they know to call it, you know, in reality, it probably got its funding because of screen, but <clears throat> I know, you know, that doesn't mean artistically it's a knockoff of, of it. I can't speak. I've had half a beer and now I'm losing my ability to speak. Um, but anyway, I, I do think it's, I do think this movie sort of like ushered in uh, budgets for horror in the UK because right after this too, we started seeing like all of the amicus stuff and a lot of what hammer did was able to be done because of this film. Yeah, I can see that. You know, it is funny though. Like when we look at the nineties scream, certainly did give a rise to that subgenre again, you know, the, the, the meta slashers were, um, even though not all of them were, you know, <laughs> all that meta, but what's great about this is you're right. Amicus certainly uh, was no doubt born from this film's success, but it was nice that, you know, we had one studio pushing these movies for the most part. We, you know, Hammer Horror stuck pretty much solely with Hammer. So as a result, they were able to keep kind of, a, I think, a close eye on the quality of the films, you know, and certainly by having uh, a director like Terrence Fisher you know, spearhead the bulk of them, it made certain that all of them felt kind of like of a piece. You know, there's no shared universe here. You know, none of these characters are ever going to cross into, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein never met up. The mummy never popped into the, you know, a werewolf film, which is sad. You know, I wish that had happened because I think it would have been a lot of fun. But they do all feel as though they're cut from the same cloth, at least quality-wise. And I love that. And that's kind of... You know, I wish we had had that a little bit after Scream. You know, how yeah. great would that era have been if every one of the uh, slasher movies that came in Scream's wake had been as good? You know, had had the budgets, well, had had the talent. And I think a big part of that is, so had all of those movies that come in the wake of Scream been directed by Wes Craven, it might be a different story. Because Terrence yeah, Fisher sure. directed a lot of these. Terrence Fisher directed, you know, this. He directed Horror of Dracula. He did... Curse of he, the Werewolf, like he directed all of the best Hammer films and Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and that's but that is a huge key component that other movements in horror cinema didn't have. They didn't have one guy shepherding all of these movies with carte blanche basically to do what he wants. I mean, he didn't have a huge budget, but he could do what he wanted. So I think that's why they all sort of feel like they exist in the same world, even though the characters definitively don't. And, and in fact, most of these franchises, each movie reinvents itself. I think in the Frankenstein series, the only one that's really like feels like a direct sequel is the second one. You know, all of the other ones each feel like they sort of have to reinvent the idea a little bit um, to kind of like more like Evil Dead 2 to Evil Dead, where it's like there are thematics that kind of carry over. Um, but the story itself has to alter so they can tell a different story. Yeah, they don't quite connect. Even the Dracula series, you know, there are yeah, there are the, moments where actually the canon fights, or rather, the movies fight against the canon, and they just refuse to match up. Correctly. But, <laughs> but the uh, weird, there's a weird thing about the Dracula series, though, because he's always resurrected based on how he died in the previous one. So even though they throw out story stuff all the time, they generally keep his death, which is so bizarre because that. <laughs> That makes it feel that's why when I watch it, it feels like a slasher franchise. Um, you know, because like 
take the it feels like the Jason franchise or the Friday Thirteenth franchise for me because well it's the like, sixth one definitely because I mean you know Jason's resurrection and Jason lives is pure yeah. like but, but they all it's all, right all of those movies like could not be more disconnected as the franchise goes along but they always make sure that jason's death carries over like how he died in the previous is how like has to be at the beginning when he's resurrected or whatever it is and and the dracula franchise does that um which i always thought was really interesting and one of the reasons i i think of it as a proto slasher franchise um because it if you Ah, look at he said victor damn it (laughs) Yeah. Oh, we've missed a couple things. I was going to call it out earlier, but you said a really good point. Um, when Elizabeth first got there, there were so many serious exchanges. So I'm going to say take like five drinks. Oh, God. All right. Yep. Also, um, when I said pours a drink and gets a drink, I didn't specify it was alcoholic and they're about to drink tea. So um, that Damn you know. she's pouring a drink. No. <laughs> And I assume when she pours it, someone will be drinking it. Again, the depth of field in these shots is wonderful. I love how he lights these big rooms, um, these ornate kind of... This was a Bray Studios film, right? Like, this was one of the ones shot at Bray. Lord Jesus. Yes. You're not even listening to me. Um, Bray Studios. I am so impressed with uh, what they accomplish at Bray Studios. Like, I can't express that enough that that and how many movies were filmed i don't know an exact number but a shit ton (laughs) and they Uh, all look different and they all look different yes and set dressing and and a lot of that though and that's why i was kind of getting at the beginning is i i feel like especially the terrence fisher joints the way he lights the sets the way he makes them either deep or shallow um, hidden in shadow or not, like certainly you can take out furniture and things like that, but he gives each film and place a personality um, based on sort of how he lights it and how he shoots it. Um, I, mean, if it's I don't the same know person that he got saying... enough credit for that. Oh, sorry. No, I think you're entirely right. Uh, this swill is getting to my head. I apologize. Um, if the same person you know says what? Victor in the same stretch, that just counts as one sip, right? Uh, I'm gonna count it as two. I think. Fucking hell! Have you finished a she single? Said it again. Yeah. Damn you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Victor's a rough one. I went back and forth because I was like, oh, we could drink every time they say Baron or every time they say Frankenstein. I was like, no, I'm gonna be punishing and make it Victor because Victor is said pretty. Son yeah, of Victor. a bitch, Elizabeth. <laughs> we know what his name is. You don't have every to keep reminding us. Elizabeth speaks. She says Victor. Like, you know, nowadays they complain. That's a com- she comic. She said it again. It's a common complaint in scripts that characters say people's names too much, you know, in, in independent horror, which I personally, I don't really get that complaint because I, I don't know. I feel like there are certain situations where people do say names a lot, but uh, anyway. I hate you. I hate your guts. I want a new co-host. Ugh. Well, you're not getting one. This is, this is, this is painful. You have no idea. Like, I feel like I'm like a better host than me. <laughs> God almighty. <laughs> I got to tell you, um, I actually prefer the made, uh, the made sort of um, relationship subplot in horror of Frankenstein over curse. Oh, absolutely. I think it's handled in a much better way. And it's a lot more interesting. And plus you have the <clears throat> from uh, Dr. Who playing her. So, yeah. And she's so good. 
She's one of the best parts of the month. The Ronnie. God. See what you've done, Paul? I'm drinking this stuff. I'm forgetting key points of Doctor Who trivia here. It's just, it's... Uh, I, so I am not, I don't know a lot about Doctor Who. I've only ever seen the, the newer stuff through David Tennant. So I've only seen David Tennant and, uh, the first guy. Christopher Eccleston. I would say like, I, I love all of it. I love all of the eras, but I will say this. A Hammer fan would love like the, I want to say it's like the third or fourth season of the fourth Doctor stuff. It was shot in the seventies. Um, they mix in a lot of sci-fi and horror into the episodes, and it was gothic horror. The fourth Doctor oh. was always finding himself, you know, wrapped up in these crazy plots that seemed directly out of a Hammer flick, and not for nothing. They actually tried to bring Doctor Who to the big Victor. screen. She back said Victor. In... No, she, she didn't. Victor. So back, yeah. she didn't. know. she said. She said guy. She said, "Hey, guy." Uh, Fuck. All right, drinking. Uh, I feel like the glance changing is a little serious as well nah personally it's not it's serious in what regard i mean she's kind of trying to appeal to his emotional side and he's sort of blowing her up look at his face look at his face that is serious that is a hundred percent serious he's smiling he has a half smile on his face that is not serious that is look at his classic they're making out come on i feel like a lot of people listening to this commentary are learning a good amount about the film right now particularly (laughs) Yeah, okay, let's point this out. You and I are both fans of the Frankenstein cycle. I love that Cushing's Frankenstein here is kind of a dick. You know, he isn't merely a driven man of science. He isn't a sympathetic man under siege from the results of his overreaching or trying to play God. I mean, I mean, he is those things, but he's also just kind of an asshole. You know, and to then to take that kind of character and build a franchise around him rather than his monster, I think is a really bold take you know given it seems like they were trying to run as far astray from the universal movies which were obviously built around the monster and karloff as they could you know i yeah but i love that cushing's frankenstein wasn't simply that guy all the way through you know he kind of ran the gamut you know he was he was the monster as we see here he was a kind of a darkly humorous anti-hero uh, he was very nearly a straight sympathetic hero for a couple of outings. He was a downright evil son of a bitch and and rapist, which yeah. was one that that sequence even exists in a horror film, a sequence that apparently Cushing furiously objected to. And ultimately, yeah. you know, by the time we reach, spoiler alert, but by the time we reach the end of his run, you know, he's ultimately just kind of a broken down, batshit, crazy old man in his final appearance. And I think that's one hell of a run, and I think it's a testament to Cushing's you know, talent and abilities as an actor that, you know, even when he's at his worst, he stays watchable. But not only that, he can play this character, so many different variations on him, and yet it still seems like the same man. You know, he creates the continuity, I think, emotionally from installment to installment to installment. And that couldn't have been easy given what he had to work with. I 100% agree. Um, I just want to throw in that that last sequence with the eyes. Um, there's actually excise footage of the eye when he first picks it up that was cut initially by the, uh, the board of uh, film certification in Britain um, that was recently reinstated, but it's, it's still hard to see. Um, But it was considered to be like, you know, too gratuitous. Um, Sorry. I just wanted to throw that weird little thing in there. Um, But with Victor, so I, I have this dream of writing a really comprehensive article about, 
the entire franchise and how there is a continuity line that Peter Cushing had in his brain, regardless of script and story, that he carries through all the way to the end and completes in the final film. Um, I, I so agree with what you said. I think that he just sort of decided on his own to tell a story with this character. Um, and emotionally, that story is there. I think throughout the entire franchise. Shit, um, he's pacing while pontificating. Damn he it, is. He's all, I mean, that's all they fucking do in this movie. They just pace, they pontificate, but Ugh. it's great. It's not getting better, Paul. It's getting no. worse. It's, it's gonna, oh, dude, the last act is gonna get you <sighs> fucking tanked because all anybody does is pontificate, say Victor, and Elizabeth asks about the laboratory. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I thought we were friends. <laughs> we are friends, Jinx. That's why I'm putting you through this. It's important. You're going to like beer at the end, I promise. I don't think um, so. But no, I, I mean, I think that um, for as simple and straightforward as this movie is, it feels kind of epic. I think some of that is the timeline of the film. Like the fact that it begins with him as a, a, a little kid and he grows up. <clears throat> you know, you, you you see a lot of things happen in less than 90 minutes. And that's a common thread in Hammer Horror is that they accomplish a lot in their very short run times. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree with that entirely. It does seem like... Pouring a drink. Pouring a drink. <sighs> Wait, sorry. What? You agree with that entirely? Go ahead. No, no, no. I Okay, I'm seeing a guy handling a skull on screen. Where are you at? Uh, I've got three people sitting and talking. I've, it's the scene where he's got the scientist guy. Wait, what? You know, like the guy he lures, um, spoiler alert, the guy he lures to his house so he can like kill him and take his brain. Okay, we I'm are at. way off. Are you watching the 84 minute version? Uh, yeah, I put the, Yes. Okay, because right now what I got is Cushing and Paul uh, bantering back and forth. In the laboratory? Yep. Let me go back. Okay, now we have Hazelcourt, and yeah, yeah, now it's the professor, now Cushing, son of a bitch, he's pouring a drink. Okay. And here we go. All right, I rewound a little bit. Listeners, this is very official. This is what happens Ah. when we get the same copy. There was a, a little bit don't of background. I have the don't UK Blu-ray. Professor, the UK Blu-ray, which has the 86-minute version, which is uncut. But it also has a DVD with the 83-minute version, which is supposed to align with the version that you can VOD. That's what I'm watching. Apparently, there is some differences, um, and that's why you're seeing some strange oddities here. Thank you for bearing with us. We greatly appreciate it. Um, These two sons of bitches are holding their drinks no interest in drinking them. I don't hope. Um, okay. Is it weird that they both have the exact same position right now? Like it looks like they're mirroring each other and they're wearing the same fucking thing. Like why are they dressed the same? <laughs> That's how people rolled back in Victorian. Did they, uh, did they coordinate ahead of time or did they, was that an accident? Was that like an awkward, like, Oh my. Well, they kind of hit their cigars at the same time at the beginning of the scene, too. And it, I'm reminded, you know, we're talking about Scream a lot. I'm reminded of the uh, the Dewey Sheriff sequence. You know, every time the sheriff would, uh, well, he would take a drag of a cigarette, was it? Dewey would hit his ice cream cone. That's a weird thing oh, to think yeah. of right now, but yeah. still. Okay. <clears throat> so this, what we got here is a Sheriff Dewey situation is what you're saying. Maybe, kind of. 
I am I am surprised at how often the movie Scream has come up during this commentary. Yeah, because it's not really similar to this film at all. But I guess they do have some commonalities in terms of the context of the film. <clears throat> you know, as much as I love the Hammer films, I can't ever say that they've ever been super intense or horrifying up until this yeah. showing. Now, anytime somebody starts to say Victor or they pick up a glass, like I, you know, I'm sweating bullets here. I'm like, do I have to take another swig of this? You do have a really good point that Hammer movies, like, aren't scary (laughs) at all. Like, not even a little for me. Um, No, they're melodies. They're wearing horror clothing. But I think it's that infusion, like that infusion of really solid, dramatic character work into situations reserved exclusively for horror or genre films that makes them stand out, you know, because the problem with a lot of the, uh, and I actually think some of the later universal films were, were trying to get at some of this stuff, but they played more like slapsticky a little bit. Um, especially some of the like, 40s and 50s universal horror work um i like a lot of it like i like a lot of the bella lugosi stuff like i like black cat a lot um you know but there's things in it, especially the later like universal monster movies like they just got so ridiculous um and it felt like even they didn't take their concept seriously whereas i feel like camera movies always take themselves fairly seriously Meaning like they're attempting to accomplish something and they don't think what they're making is dumb or throwaway. Like they're actually trying to make something good regardless of budget, script, whatever. We never would have gotten an Abbott and Costello meets Oliver Reed's werewolf, for example. No, never. Right. I agree. I agree. Man, Oliver Reed. So great. So that is he's, he's the best part of that movie. That is a gorgeous movie, too. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned you were talking about these writing about it right now. Oh, <laughs> what were you saying? Oh, oh, oh Professor, uh, it's like a ticking clock on screen right now. Ready in five, four. Uh, that painting three. is the depiction of a hanging man. By the way, it's a bunch of that. Also, that stunt is fantastic. It's amazing. Like um, I, and the I'm stuntman sure actually, actually oh, killed him. <laughs> uh, funny you should mention that the stuntman actually his head didn't land on the pad. So it actually did hit the floor and he was uh, almost really, really horribly injured and potentially could have died from that. But they got really lucky. But the painting that he was showing the doctor was of a hanging man. And it was like a bunch of doctors looking at a hanging man. I forget the name of the painting, Um, but it's I think it's like the anatomy lesson of somebody. Um, But the painting and how it was drawn was actually mirroring Victor's own actions, which I thought was like a really nice touch. Um, uh, because, you know, that's something that the movie didn't have to do that no one watching it ever would have picked up on, but, you know, just something that Terrence Fisher, whoever it was, set designer wanted to make something that actually resonated in the story. That's a beautiful touch. And I love this sequence, the funeral. It's everyone. Look at, look at, look at that. The gravestones, how they're kind of jutting out in random directions. They're all crammed together. What a beautiful looking set. And the lighting here, again, you have lights sort of behind him in the hallway, creating depth of field, the stairs moving upward. 
I mean, this is there, there's nuance here that is reflective of what you know Roger Corman went on to do with his Poe cycle. I think a lot of that stuff is really heavily influenced by early Hammer work. Oh, absolutely. He's breathing right there. <laughs> the body was very clearly taking a breath. And out of all of the footage they must have had, why choose the the 48 frames where the guy's taking a breath? Uh, my opinion, it was very hastily edited. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> From everything I've read about early Hammer. <laughs> but, you know, I think they also, I mean, you have to, for me, the way I look at these older films, their perspective was people would watch this like once and probably never see it again or not see it for years. They wouldn't have the ability to analyze it, to watch it over and over again on disc or whatever. Like they would go to the theater, they'd see it and they'd be so caught up in the moment that they wouldn't dissect small things like that, you know? So like older films when there's like a boom mic in the shot or somebody breathing when they're supposed to be dead. I think it was more just, Oh, well they won't notice and no one's ever going to watch it again. So whatever. You know. How different do you think films would look today if you could go back and tell filmmakers of the 40s, 50s, 60s, hell, 70s? If you could tell them that their work was going to live on, that the stuff that they were shooting it had to do more than simply sell on the yeah. first viewing. You know, that people or were going create, to be able to pause on frames. Yeah, would it make them too paranoid a... to make good work? Or do you think the yeah. work would be even better? Um. I think that's a really good question. I think it depends on the director. I think some directors, it wouldn't change at all. In fact, I think... How many takes would Kubrick have shot then in The Shining? Like, but what don't, would he don't you put... think like Kubrick wouldn't have given a shit and would have done exactly what he did because Kubrick made the movie he wanted to make and that was who he was? You know, I, I think that a guy like that, like he made what he wanted to make. I don't think there's anything in the world that would have changed his filmography or what he did in his films, because that was who he was as a creative. He did what he wanted to do. Um, and he didn't really give a shit what people thought of it. And it's amazing to me that he was a considered to be a commercial director because he was so uncommercial in every decision he made. You know, he never, I, he, I don't think he made movies to please his audiences. I think he made movies to please himself. And I think that's why, they last so long, but it's also why, like when they initially came out with the exception of a few titles, a lot of his films weren't appreciated. Said Victor, damn it. <clears throat> Sorry. I went on a Kubrick rant. No, I'm, I'm listening. I'm I just... pontificating and pacing, aren't I? Shit. I just said the drinkless poison. Uh... <laughs> you know, that is, that is a good point that you make. And yet at the same time, Kubrick is such a perfectionist. I wonder if that wouldn't have affected him on some level simply because I mean, hell, I remember buying the box set of, um, all of Kubrick's films, that initial box set that Warner Brothers put out in the late 90s. And all of his films were Victor, pan and scan. Sorry. All of his films were pan and scan. Go on. Ugh. Even when movies, everything that was being released to DVD, one of the big selling points was, hey, film fans, everything is being put out you know, in widescreen. You can see it for the first time in 185 or 235. You know, none of that pesky pan and scan shit that you would see on VHS, pal. And yet, when Kubrick stuff finally made it to DVD, everything was in pan and scan because Kubrick wanted audiences to view the films 
in such a way that they completely filled the frame of their televisions, which were four by three at the time, right? So it, it wasn't until, you know, the advent of widescreen televisions that, you know, his estate relaxed and allowed stuff to be released in the proper aspect ratio as it was exhibited, you know, in theaters. So if he was that pissy about something like that, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious about what. Well, he locked up. I mean, his first movie, Fear and Desire, he didn't even he he got every copy. He put it in his vaults and he said, no one can ever see this. And it wasn't until after his death that his family released that film, you know, which was his very first feature film. I think it was a predated Killer's Kiss. And with that, you know, said, when the hell are we going to be able to see the day the clown cried? Like, it's time. You know, uh, I every everything. Look. Everything will eventually come out. Anything that isn't out or that we think is lost. I mean, there's some shit that is lost. I mean, Brad Henderson talks about it a lot, but films can actually be lost. Like they can go away. And that's a really scary thought. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for places like Scream Factory and other boutique labels that maintain these movies and give them a second life. Um, but I think for the most part, big famous things that are, contained or hidden from audiences will eventually be released um i mean look at you know we all thought the nightbreed uh director's cut was never going to see the light of day and now we have a hd master of it you know we thought producer's cut of halloween would only ever be a vhs tape now we have like an hd copy you know there's all kinds of things that we thought were lost that are actually around it's just a matter of them coming out what i really want to see is Wes craven's cursed the real one yes <laughs> Yeah, that would be fantastic. I, you know, it's funny. You named two of my big ones. You know, you named Nightbreed. You named uh, the producer's cut. Honestly, at this point, I just wanted the director's cut of the Magnificent Ambersons, and like 18-year-old me would be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's I, that Criterion Blue, right? Yeah, but it's not. I, it's I not think the, all the footage yeah. from his original cut is completely lost. Yeah, that's true. All right, I have to, uh, I have to go grab another <laughs> bottle. I'll be back. Not happy about this. Keep the I'll just, uh, listeners. I'll just start if you talking about things. You're going to um, give so, me hell, aren't you? So here fine. we are back in the uh, back in the uh, laboratory uh, with many spinning things and bubbling water. Uh, there's a body in there. Um, this is something that uh, I really appreciate about Hammer is an actor's ability to be alone on screen in a really interesting environment and just kind of go nuts and keep the drama compelling. Um, this is something that Peter Cushing does in a lot of Hammer movies, um, but particularly in the Frankenstein saga. Um, you, his mania is constantly manifested when he's in his laboratory. Um, and personally, I think it's one of the most interesting threads in the film, you know, outside of all the characters to work and the actual creatures he's creating. That's a really cool shot. I'm back. More I filled here. the time with uh, pontificating, so you should probably drink about uh, no. Peter Cushing and how great he is. Peter Cushing is fucking fantastic. Oh, he's so great. You know, there's a funny anecdote. I don't know where I heard it. I think it was on a commentary for this movie at some point, or maybe it was an article. I don't know. Somebody wrote it and talked about it. But, like, uh, did you know how... Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee um, sort of became friends 
on this film because this was what they it wasn't the first time they worked together. They were in a couple movies before this. I think it was like weren't they in a Hamlet production? And um, sure. Anyway, but they became friends on this movie because Lee Lee was notorious for like not liking Hammer's scripts, especially the scripts they write for him. Like you know the the story on Prince of Darkness was Dracula actually did have a ton of lines, but. <laughs> Lee hated them so much they refused to read them. So the reason he's silent throughout that film was because he hated the script, but it actually makes for like one of the scariest Draculas in the entire franchise. Um, anyway, so he like burst into Peter Cushing's uh, dressing room on the set of this film. And he was complaining. He's like, I have no lines in this film. They want me to be in this movie. It's a Frankenstein movie. And yet I have no lines. And he was really angry. And Cushing very like quietly and respectfully uh, kind of looked at him and gave him a smile and said, well, you're lucky. I've read the script. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. And they and Cushing just started laughing and they became really good friends after that. And they were like very close friends for the rest of their lives. Um, but a lot of their friendship was actually born out of this production. I just want to know where that biopic is. When do we get a movie about, you know, Cushing and Lee's friendship? I feel like we're, uh, part of me feels like we're do that, but another part of me is kind of like, well, if they did make that movie, who the hell would you cast? The closest I could come up with is maybe, uh, and this is only because I fan cast what modern Hammer films would be today, but like maybe Fassbender as a young Cushing, but who the yes, hell would you get to play would Christopher work. Lee? That would work. I have no idea. Maybe an unknown you know, I, I don't know that there's anybody. I think this is the issue with biopics in general. Like, how do you cast these people? And I think you, you have to go in one of two directions. You either find somebody who looks like eerily similar and can somehow mimic them perfectly. Or you just go like in a totally different direction and just get someone who's a really good actor, you know, and you just say, you know what? They're not going to look like them, but they're a great actor and they're going to do a great job Uh we just Victor. we just missed like the big, the big reveal of the monster there. Wait, what? I'm still not. What, what do you What do you think about the uh, the makeup? Oh, you're not. You don't see the monster. He's not strangling Peter Cushing. He is not. I'm about thirty seconds behind that. Oh, wait. He just opened the door, revealing the creature now, which is one of the great shots in all of horror, and maybe the single best shot in all of Hammer horror. It's a great shot. Um, so I, I have to ask, uh, what do you think about the makeup? I think that Lee is absolutely iconic as this figure, and I think it's a damn shame that he isn't recognized, you know, as recognized for his role here as Karloff was, or even, mm. say, as much as he was for playing Dracula. I'd argue that he's every bit as good as Karloff, uh, and is far more realistic looking, though I doubt realism was a concern for, you know, James Whale and company back then. But still, you know, I think Lee's monster is much more... He's much more terrifying. I think he feels much more alive in a way. I think he stands as one of the very best screen Frankenstein monsters here. And, you know, the makeup, when you look at it, I mean, yeah, sure, maybe it isn't, you know, uh, if you stare too closely. You know, if you scrutinize it, then you can see the seams, you can see the wax, sure. But there's something that's deeply upsetting about it. And it strikes me much more as being a resurrected corpse and a damaged one at that than... You know, something that never probably, you know, you look at Karloff and I'm not bashing Karloff. I love Karloff's monster. I think he's brilliant. But 
that face would never exist in nature. You know, that well, head yeah. would never exist in nature. He no. is very clearly a screen creature, oh, screen Victor. monster. He said Victor. Sorry. I'm listening. Did he, but he, Did he really? Victor. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you look at a. You Serious look at glances. Christopher Lee and. <laughs> damn, okay, I'm just going to. Oh, Victor again. <laughs> Okay, three. I'm, I'm, I'm at three. I'll just bank them all here. Sorry, I, I keep interrupting you. But <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. But, you know, when you look at Christopher Lee's monster here, he feels much more like the resurrected corpse of Mary Shelley's novel. Uh, even if he doesn't look like him exactly, I think he more embodies that spirit than Karloff's version of the character. And as a result, I love him. And he's much more, to me, he's much more, far more threatening and far more scary. You know, we were just talking about how Hammer films weren't that scary. And for the most part, I don't think they are. And yet, there are a couple of sequences in this movie where Lee is genuinely threatening and more than a little creepy. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about that makeup that's really interesting, and this was something I researched I a while ago. Okay. I'm, I'm listening. But I'm going to take three <laughs> You're fine. I researched it because I kind of wanted to do a written in blood on it. It's another, uh, not to sound like I'm. I, I hate to, yeah, I don't know why I'm bringing up something else I write, but like I was going to do an article on like the effects of this movie and I found out that, um, so the initial idea was to make him look like a, like a car crash victim, even though that wasn't like a, there weren't cars back then, but he's like, I want him to make it look, look like a guy who had an accident and died. Um, and he did like a cast of Lee's head and the cast had failed. So he wasn't able to design the makeup like he wanted to. So the day before they shot that scene, he had to just come up with something with like household materials. So he just like, he had no cast, no plan and they made that makeup. And since they didn't have any like latex or anything, that makeup had to be redone every single day from scratch, just from sketches. So every day of shooting, they had to redo the whole makeup (laughs) without any like point of reference for the actual makeup. And I think it's amazing. It actually looks as good as it does. And that it holds together over the course of multiple scenes, you know, because realistically it shouldn't look that good. No, not at all. And certainly, I mean, there seems to be a continuity from screen, you know, from scene to scene. Uh, Paul, this beer is terrible. Oh, my God. Look, I'm just trying to to give input on this film and enjoy my beer. And I want you to go along for the ride. I want you to enjoy this with me. I'm on my second. I'm like two. I'm a beer and a half in at this point. I am too. Okay, good. Then we're actually so keeping pace. We're kind of keeping up together. My my beer is uh, just above like stone right now. So yeah, I think. Oh, you can kind of see his neck there under the makeup. <laughs> that was not a great. You can kind of see where the makeup stops. Oh, <laughs> uh, we are we are definitely way off right now. Oh, I'm at the blind man. Or, uh, yeah, the blind okay. man sequence. The blind man is there. Lee has just stepped in the frame. Holy shit, you can't see his neck. It looks like a mask, like a pullover mask. Come oh, on, guys. so far off. I don't know. Okay, Lee is staring at him. God, that milky eye okay. is... All right. Okay, I'm, I just rewound a little bit, audience, so I can try to catch... Lee is approaching, thing. and... Let me this just is say, the ultimate like... commentary, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I love Lee's look. I love that coat. I love the dark hair. I love how he lumbers about, you know, he's not, he's not aping Karloff at all, but he's still doing like resurrected corpse with all of his ticks and twitches. And, and he's also playing like kind of an innocent, but also somebody who's utterly lethal. If you cross him, whether you realize it or not. 
Well, and Lee only, like, the two reasons Lee got the job over, who was the other person they were talking about playing the monster? There's, like, another person who really came close to uh, playing the monster in this film. I can't think of his name, so I'm a bad commentator. But I feel bad if it were David Warner. Ultimately, uh, Lee got it because he was really tall and because he was willing to take two less pounds a day's wages. <laughs> Because the other guy asked for like 10 pounds a day and we asked for eight and they went with him because he asked for eight. And I'm pretty sure this was the thing that springboarded Lee to eventually become Dracula. Oh, it has to. Yeah. I mean, they, they the owed thing him. that like springboarded Lee's career. So if it, so if it weren't for him willing to take less money. <laughs> and this is such a haunting shot too. I'm not sure if you're here yet, but the push in while the kid is edging toward the spot, yes, the clearing. There. We like, are together. Okay. I mean, yeah, Frank sense monster man shit. killing the shit out of kids since 1818. Like he just yeah. uh, don't even think he means Fantastic to. But... Yeah. And then the fade and, you know, those two hunting. Yeah. Okay. What do you, what do you think about the character of uh, Paul in this film? Like what, what's your stance on him? I like Paul. I don't know that. <sighs> I feel like the movie wants him to be the conscience of the film, but I don't know that he fully bears that out in a way. I I think there is a version of this movie that could exist without that character entirely. Mm. And yet, you know, being a huge fan of the Frankenstein cycle, like, and certainly his performance, I kind of wish that he had returned. You know, I know that the movies aren't big on continuity. And yet I uh, imagine his final film, imagine monster from hell. Imagine if Paul had bopped in then, probably looking the same damn age. You know, <laughs> it's that point that it's so... revealed that Paul is a vampire. You know, I would love to see what he would have made of what became a Frankenstein. Oh, and well, especially because the last go, film is sort of like, yeah. Also, you can see the blood in Christopher Lee's hand before it touches his eye. Like he's holding a bunch of blood, basically, is what they did. They just filled his hand with blood and then he put it on his face. That's how they did that shot. Um, And like if you frame by frame it, because I'm a jerk and I'm spoiling it. Um, But again, (laughs) I I like I like the uh, the DIY attitude these films have for as ornate as they are. Um, Paul, I agree with you. I actually I, I would like him in the final film. I think what I wanted more out of Paul was to be he's established as a father figure at the beginning. Right. Because it's a little boy without a father who's acting like an adult who needs somebody to step in and raise him. And Paul makes the mistake of being his friend instead of his teacher. Yeah. And I think in some ways, the reason Paul hangs around is out of guilt for not being more proactive in how in his hand in raising this this boy. I think he feels guilty about it and that he helped usher in this sort of madman, whereas he could have made an impact on his life. So bringing him into uh, Frankenstein, the monster from hell would have been really interesting because then you could have had a redemption arc with Paul where he's trying to help Victor. I think, and that's the one thing I, I wish this movie had done more was Paul kind of turns against Victor and it's like, you're bad. I'm going to get, I'm going to stop you versus like, let me help you. I care about Like I wanted Paul to care about Victor more. Um, and the, because the final scene, especially. Like 
Yeah, the final scene really kind of bugs me. I watched, I mean, we're jumping way ahead. But it's like, I don't really buy that Paul would be that callous towards him. Especially given that Paul is complicit in this. He really is. And Victor was just a boy. You know, he lost, he had way too much power and money to be the age that he was. And he lost everything. And Paul was the only adult in his life that had an actual ability to impact what it was he was going to become. I think um, that um, all Frankenstein really wanted was um, somebody to hang with. Yeah, I think he wanted to chill. I think he just wanted to chill, man, and have have a drink with someone and pontificate and pace. And, you know, Paul just didn't deliver. You know, just you saying pontificate and pace doesn't mean I'm going to take a drink. I think you should. But that's, I guess that's just me. I don't know. Come on, Paul. I if you don't get mo- it, all he wanted was somebody like to hang the, with. Come on. I love the motif. I'm going to appreciate the pun. What I, well, you know. <laughs> I'm punny. Uh, I, I appreciate the hanging man motif in this movie, by the way. <laughs> A lot of hanging men appearing from time to time in the painting when they steal the first body just now. I find that really fascinating. I don't know. I just like it. If I missed any drinks, I don't know why I'm asking. I don't want to know the answer. So, um, are, is he talking to the maid right now? Uh, yes, I beg your pardon. Good. Are you marrying that woman? Aren't you forgetting yourself? You promised to marry me. I, I want you, for the rest time. of the movie, I just want you to read the dialogue like you just did. Don't you laugh at me? Stop it. Stop it, Earl. What will you do? I'll kill you. No, I'm not doing this. Um, <laughs> Best commentary ever. <laughs> but you've got to marry me. <laughs> no, no, I... You're uh, starting to sound like Mickey a little bit at the end there, like Mickey oh. Mouse. <laughs> that would I, be a- I love how cold and fucking callous he is towards her here. Like, he's like, did you really think I was going to marry you? I, you know, like... like out of nowhere and he doesn't it doesn't even phase him at all i think this is a moment in the film where his sociopathy becomes like abundantly clear like more so than almost any other scene up until now because very rarely does he lay himself bare like this in front of anyone other than paul even when he advances on her he is every bit as intimidating as there's a danger there that Cushing is able to flip on like like a light switch. And as much as I hate to say it, and as much as Cushing hated shooting that scene, and I, I just certainly don't want to dwell on this, but, you know, there's scenes like this, like when there's that unspoken threat when he moves toward her. I mean, obviously he's threatening that he could kill her, and we know ultimately where she winds up. And yet, you know, as much as he didn't want to shoot the scene, you know, I don't think it's that far of a stretch, the version of Frankenstein that he plays in, uh... Oh, God, um... Oh, this much beer shouldn't have wiped that from my memory. But the fourth Frankenstein, fifth, I'm sorry, the one that follows up uh, Created Woman. Uh, you know, the Frank- Frankenstein must be destroyed, right? Must be destroyed, yes. Uh, that has the monster with no makeup in it. The guy's just bald. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. The scene with Veronica Carlson when he attacks her. Like, you know, I know Cushing hated shooting that scene. And admittedly, I, I wish that scene were not in the movie. And yet, I don't think it's... It's that much of a stretch. No, it's not. And I, I think, I think the reason they don't like it is more 
the obvious like implications of what it represents. I think it's more like, I just don't want to make a movie where there's something like that depicted. And I didn't think he feel felt care- comfortable as a character doing that. Like knowing he played a character that would do something like that. Um, I remember reading you know. an interview with uh, Veronica Carlson where she talked about how the fact that uh, neither one of them wanted to do it and Cushing mm-hmm. actually cried before mm-hmm. the scene because yeah, he, was he was so he upset. Was, she was upset too, um, you know. And on the uh, – gosh, I don't know where I saw it. Maybe the Blu-ray maybe? Um, there's a like a documentary or making of where they talk a lot about that and how they – they're well, he, he's not in it obviously because he's passed, but like – uh, she talked about how she still harbors resentment about that. Like to this day, um, the rape sequence. So, but un- which is worth noting, like the sequence is not explicit at all. Like it's no, all... not at all. Like you don't really like most, I mean, there's a rape in curse of the werewolf that you don't see, but it's very, it's very important to the plot. It's how he's born. <laughs> it's why he's cursed, you know? Um, but I think back then, too, having a rape in a movie like this, I will say, makes it feel more a little less classy. You know, yeah. it, it feels a little more exploitative, more like 70s Grandhouse or something, you know, because it's it's a plot point that a movie shouldn't. And I don't want to be like um, judgmental towards. I don't you know, films can do whatever they want as long as it makes sense within the context of the narrative. But it does feel a little exploitative to lean on that for your entire film to work, you know. And I don't know that the uh, Frankenstein movie needs the rape. I think that might be why it bothers them more. Because I think the movie would still probably work just fine without it. I think what Uh, bugs me too is like the... The only reason it's in there, it's not for the plot. It wasn't in the screenplay. It wasn't ever planned. There was a producer who decided that the movie should be more titillating. And so his answer to that wasn't to insert a love scene or, you know, his... Oh, that is neat. But his his answer was to have a a rape scene or the suggestion of a rape scene. And I remember, uh, I think it was in Famous Monsters where, you know, the same Veronica Carlson interview where somebody pointed out, like... The producer was asking for a love scene, but suggesting a rape scene. And they had to point out, look, there is a difference, you know, and uh, the fact that it would have fallen on deaf ears with that guy to the point where it actually got made in the first place is more than a little disturbing. Yeah, for sure. You know, I got to say, I wish Frankenstein had done something with her body uh, with wait, No, wait, no, that sounds terrible. What I mean is Frankenstein, you know, Frankenstein was never one to let a good body go to waste. That Yeah, that's. Still sounds terrible. What? <laughs> what, what, what scene I, are you I at, mean by the way? I want to make sure we're we're aligned. What scene are you on? Uh, it is now Elizabeth and Victor at breakfast. What are they saying? Uh, I'm worried about Justine. You know, it's a week since she went away, and we still have no word from her. How are the wedding invitations coming along? Uh, you see that? No. Yes, right there. Okay. Cool. Yeah, Just but, making sure. Sorry. That, <laughs> we seem to be weirdly out of sync. I know. I know. It's bizarre. Um, yeah. What I mean is I'm surprised that he didn't strip her down for spare parts. Like we, that still sounds terrible. We could have seen like the monster sporting like brand new eyes, or maybe he could have attempted making the monster a bride here. I don't know. And I'm wondering like, 
you know, obviously they kept the movie short, 90 minutes. They were never going to adapt the full novel. They were never going to attempt doing The Bride of Frankenstein. But it's surprising that they never really tried to do The Bride in any respect. Like, Frankenstein Created Woman doesn't even count, I don't think. You know, that's not no. a Bride of Frankenstein kind of tale. Oh, totally. so, oh, pouring a drink, pouring a drink. I just finished my second drink, by the way. Did you? Holy shit, I'm way behind. All right, I think you should have to keep up. I think you should have to finish what you have and pop a third. That's oh. what I because if I'm if I'm on three, look at this guy. Look at the camp. Seems only fair. I'm cracking it. Listen, now we were talking about you know the movies taking themselves seriously, Hammer taking themselves seriously, but this dude right here is straight up like a campy dude out of like Universal. That is a Universal holdover. Yes. Like somebody check yep. that motherfucker for a wooden hand. Like this, he, this is a goofy, uh, straight up slapstick comedy moment. In this movie, and it's the only one. It feels like a like a a studio note or something. Yeah. Hey, can we get a couple of yucks in here, please? <laughs> yeah. This movie needs levity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, she's asking about his laboratory. Fucking hell. Are right, you, you should again, you should oh. have to finish the beer you're on. That's what I feel. Oh. I mean, oh. I say you. I'm not your... getting hammered during this episode. I'm just getting pissed. Is what's happening I know, here? I know. Like I can't. I need you to finish your beer and get to beer three. That's what I'm asking for. That's that's what I'm putting forth currently. I, I'm saying. Uh... Getting a bunch of drinks. This is seriously terrible. Oh my god. Just chug it. Just just close your eyes. Ew! No, I'm not gonna chug this thing. Just just go. Go for it. It's it's worse if you draw it out. It's like taking off a Band-Aid. You just got to do it. This is like taking off the Band-Aid and then eating the Band-Aid. Like rolling the Band-Aid around in your Band-Aids mouth. Band-Aids are not nearly this delicious. It's... You know, I read that even in the VHS days, this was one of the most rare Hammer movies to get a hold of in the U.S. I'm actually starting to retch a little bit. You know, and let's talk about that. Why is it when we get Hammer releases here in the States, they're always out of order? They're, oh, yeah. It makes no sense. It's like, hey, we're going to go ahead and start releasing these brand spanking new special editions with all these bonus features. Which one are we starting with? The fourth one in the franchise. Yep. Just, it's, it. it's because the studios over here that we're putting them out initially don't give a shit. And they just wanted to pick what they felt were the most popular titles. That's why we had... You know, we had like a two disc special edition of Dracula, Prince of Darkness. We had a special edition of um, uh, Frankenstein Created Woman. But, you know, there's still to this day no curse. Uh, Horror of Frankenstein was only recent or a horror of Dracula was only recently released by Warner Archive. Thank God for Warner Archive, by the way, putting out um, several of the Dracula films in nice editions. Um, And now Scream doing what they're doing. And I'm really excited because I, I believe Scream will put this movie out. I think this will get a really nice Scream special edition. Yeah, special edition. It's great. You're fine. Ah, just the part I was looking for. Are you still in your second beer? Cause no, I'm, I'm just about to finish. Hang on. Feels like you're kind of drawing that out. Yep. It's okay. I mean... I wonder what that wicker basket's for. The wicker basket in his laboratory. Oh. 
All right, number three. I feel like Frankenstein always needs a foil to just be like really disappointed, frightened by what he's doing. But the Frankenstein wants to convince it's good. And I feel like the point is the foil represents like all of mankind. And it's like if Frankenstein can convince him, then he can convince everyone that what he's doing is important. In a way, like if he could corrupt the most innocent, then maybe he's not quite as bad as he thinks he is. Yeah, like like it it strikes me as is interesting because it's a a common theme that comes up in these movies. Um, please, no, don't look at me. My hair's a fright. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll try not to be punished. It's okay. The beer, no, the beer is playing a role. Fine, you're fine. You know, I got to tell you, Frankenstein. Like, if it gets to that point, you just you just got to buzz it down to the skin, man. That's what I had to do. It's all you can do at that point. I mean, I mean, you can you can rock the receding hairline. Not when it looks well, I'm, like I'm that. doing it right now, my friend. What? <laughs> when are you going to take the clippers to it, man? Just do it all at uh, once. We were talking know. Band-Aid method. Just try it once. It's one of those things. It's, it's it's scary the first time, and then you'll ask yourself why you didn't do it 15 years ago. Really? Yep. Swear to God. Yeah, because I'm I'm basically bald on the top i mean it's 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 i have hair there but it's you know if you see it it's it's you can see right through and it's receding on the front now i will say this i have a most epic beard um and you don't have brad mccart beat like i feel like uh, that's i don't but i'll be honest with you i'm getting there man like my beard is getting pretty full i don't post a lot of pictures i'm not a selfie guy because i have a lot of weird like I don't know. I just don't feel like like I'm, every time I would post a selfie, a I'm like, who the fuck would want to look at me? <laughs> oh yeah, well, Fantastic Fest. I'm like, oh, I'm next to Taika. Sure, that's going online. But like, you know, I, otherwise, I'm like, Fantastic there's no point. Fest. That was Selfie Fest, face. sir. I I had I put a lot of selfies online at Fantastic Fest, but you know, I had a thing where if I was in a movie theater, I photographed whoever was around me. Like, whoever was sitting next to me, I would do, like, a, a selfie, and it became, like, a series that, like, you know, I kept doing. I don't know. I can't explain it. It was a selfie series. It will happen again if I ever go back to Fantastic Fest, which I someday hope to, assuming the world does not come to a complete end. I'm not I'm trying not to get topical, you know. No, but, let's get topical. Why not? I mean, we, we have to differentiate ourselves. I'm sure we're not the only Hammer podcast out there. Hey, just to let you know, listeners out there, we happen to be in the middle of a friggin' pandemic. I hope you're listening in the future and that everything turned out all right. But right now, as bad as this beer is, I got to say, any type of alcohol, any sort of alcohol consumption that helps pull us away from the horror that is every single day in this point in so time true. ain't so bad. So true. I'm very grateful for this alcohol and for Jenks for inviting me on his wonderful podcast. No stop. Yeah, and and how did you repay me after I told oh, you the beer? Making you was... drink, you don't like beer. You know, I you gave me a choice. I feel like this is more on you than me because if you didn't want to drink beer, you knew I liked beer. I don't know. know that I knew that. If I did, I blocked it out. Well, maybe you blocked it out. I just, uh, we're now towards the climax of the film uh, yeah. where shit's about to go south. Um, I don't know if we're aligned right now, Jinx, but Elizabeth is 
sort of peeking through a doorway and she's walking into the room. Suspenseful music is playing. I'm slurring a little bit. There isn't a whole hell of a lot of alcohol content in this beer, but I'm, I'm feeling it a little bit. Maybe it's just uh, my body trying to reject the taste. Should we each chug a beer? Fuck no. Are you out of your damn mind? I would be willing to do it if you do it. Okay, right now I will I'm, do seeing, it you uh, do it. I'm seeing Frankenstein. Oh, he's just moving on, I see. He's pulling He's pulling the chain loose from the wall, like loads of forearm strength there. Just just pulls it right out of the wall. Yep. Elizabeth with her beautiful dress, kind of carrying her candle to see what's going on. I think this counts as Elizabeth uh, asking about the laboratory because she's sort of seeking it out. No. So I'm going to go ahead and say we should drink. She hasn't said a word. No. Uh, No. Did you know many of her costumes in this film are actually from that time period? Wait, really? Like they're from a collection? Yeah. They are gorgeous. Yeah, they're actually like real dresses from the time that this film is set in from the, I don't know, was it the... 19th century or 18th century. When's the film take place in the 1800s? 18. Yeah. It would have been like 1880s, right? Mid 1800s or something. Yeah, sure. Okay. Now Paul is actually attacking Victor. Okay. Now I'm missing that right now. I'm seeing the creature peering through a window, watching Elizabeth. Who's there? Okay, so the two of them are talking. They're having a heated conversation. Paul, you're how. watching... I might have a theory here. You are watching the UK DVD, right? Correct. Okay, the frame rate is different. Oh, that's what it is. For I sure. By like a frame, but eventually they're yeah, all... That's that's 100% what it is. Okay, so listeners out there, Paul has failed us. I'm sorry. Well, you know, <laughs> I have... The uncut version, which is what I wanted to watch, but I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry. Did you did you buy American? Did you? I bet well, you did. You didn't I buy American, did you? And what happened? The film, which was intended by the director Terrence Fisher. Oh, you gotta I mean, say it like that. Who's keeping track? Who's keeping track? Uh, I understand. That's cool. You know, one thing I like about these horror films, especially the ones that were take off of universal movies is reading about how Jimmy Sangster was like constantly trying to avoid lawsuits from universal <laughs> <laughs> and how he kept having to like slightly change shit. So they wouldn't be like, you are stealing our ideas. Like, no, I'm just, cha- I'm doing a different adaptation. And like almost every one of these movies has a story where it's like they had to change a script or change a thing. So it wasn't like that. Um, you know, he didn't quite dip his toe into the Hammer pool as much as Terrence Fisher, and yet, you know, he is almost equally as synonymous with Hammer as Terrence Fisher. I mean, he did, he wrote Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula, and he did Revenge, and um, uh, he wrote The Mummy, he wrote The Brides of Dracula, which is pretty much my favorite Hammer. He also, he also wrote Curse of the Werewolf. Curse of the Werewolf, uh, Horror of Frankenstein, uh, which I which, think, did he, he also directed that one, right? Or was that... Um, uh maybe i think but, so yeah i think so yeah because i just which is far I, better I than it gets i just wrote about it <laughs> yeah. he also wrote a uh a non-fiction like a lot of things. <laughs> oh frankenstein's on fire and okay you know what let me just say this folks at home look at that 
look at the fire on the real guy. Look at the that, real guy fantastic. and the real fire bouncing yeah. around there. You look, you see how good that looks? Actual <laughs> fire in a <laughs> horror film? <laughs> you know, just, just take note every fucking like, modern horror uh, film. The addition of the Breaking Bad acid that, like, dissolves things. <laughs> I want to see Breaking Bad. It reminded me of that quite a bit. Oh, yeah, there's Back a priest. The I like that this movie has a wraparound too. Yes, yeah, that is very cool. You know what is weird about feels this? Really scene? modern. That's a really modern conceit for storytelling, like for the time that this was made. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. No, no, no. I think you're right. I and I love that for it. You know, it's and it's weird that it has that wraparound sequence. You know, that begins right after like an opening title scroll. That sets it up, which feels so unbelievably dated. So, yeah. in a way, in the film's first two minutes, you have right there, like, the kernel of what the film is. You know, it's dealing with, like, these older tropes, but it's doing it in a very modern way. You know, you're yeah. used to those old black and white movies that are quite a bit restrained. Well, now you get gorgeous colors. You get widescreen photography. You get a little bit of, uh, you know... A little bit of gore. There's a little bit of sex. Like these are a little edgier, a little harder than what your uh, your dad's classic monster movies might have been. You know, and what's yeah. great about it is, is even though we've had more updates since, like countless updates since, you know, on those characters, these still feel modern. They don't feel dated in any no. way to me. No, I agree. And we're actually at the scene now where I feel like Paul is at his shittiest. Because he's throwing Victor under the bus. Basically, the only... Like, he's going to die either way. He has an opportunity to tell another human that what what Victor's saying isn't a lie, and he doesn't. Well, that's the thing. Just I wonder why he's Victor acting like, like his crazy life person. is on the line. Like, why he's yeah, appealing to And he's so about to run off with, with Victor's wife. Like, it's really shitty what Paul's doing. And Paul, like, is complicit in this as i said earlier and paul gets away scot-free whereas victor is put to death it's pretty crappy if, and even victor... if paul told the oh, complete truth though frankenstein would still fucking hang would he not oh yeah, that's what i mean like there's no reason for him not to give this guy one small like i don't know i, I and victor did a lot of shitty things like <laughs> i'm not defending victor but I feel like when you look at it through the lens of their relationship, where Paul is a father figure to Victor and Paul actually cared about Victor, I never saw that care or love manifest itself in any real way the minute Paul realized what Victor was attempting to create, which I don't honestly believe. Like, I kind of think Paul would still have residual feelings of paternity for that kid that he raised you know i don't know no i agree i i do wish they'd re and for that alone i wish they'd revisited that character in elizabeth even for you know we needed the friday the 13th part two opening mm -hmm. sequence in the revenge of frankenstein we yeah. needed like a prologue Love. where uh you know frankenstein he uh he gets free of the guillotine and then uh you know he goes and whacks uh elizabeth and paul I, I, think I love that the uh, guillotine raising at the end, like yeah. over the credits. I think that's a really awesome little touch. 
Also, uh, Victor was listed in the credits, and I think we should have to drink for that. Fucking hell. All right, last one. What are you going to do with your three undrank stone IPAs, sir? I'm going to, and I'm not making this up. I'm going to pop all three of those at once. I'm going to pour them down the drain, and I'm going to giggle like a madman while I do it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make me a promise. I I want you to make me a promise. I I I want you to put them, listen, listen. I want you to put them in your fridge, and I want you to save them for post-pandemic when I come to visit, and I will drink them. No. Paul, no. No, (laughs) I'm watching those things going down. you a blu-ray of your choosing no, 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 no. video in tampa it needs but to be those, these. <laughs> those damn beers are going down the drain tonight i don't want them in the apartment unacceptable, unacceptable. <laughs> all they right need to be drank. they deserve to be drank no not by me not by me i can hear the drain saying feed me though and that's that's what i plan to do sir it's uh it's getting three and a half uh stone ip you know what i knew better than to take the first sip when I saw like a devil head on the front of the yeah. bottle. What the, what the fuck is that thing anyway? Uh, it's well, they have the Stone brand has like a, a gargoyle as its mascot. Is it his piss that we're drinking? Because gargoyle piss sounds about right. Like it has more bite than any other. Honest, hand drunk. to God, Jinx. I'm telling you the truth. I think it's delicious. Nice. I love it. Exactly. I cannot get enough. I'm really enjoying it. That's probably why I'm done with my third beer already. Ugh. Because I really, really like it. And there's other beers that they make that someday you will drink. Because Paul, Paul you don't understand. I have tried every you know, I feel like I, I understand too much difference between the Paul I'm speaking to and the Paul from Curse of Frankenstein. All right. Like I I thought wow. we were friends, those, but at a certain point it's a turn work, and then you turn kind of cold <laughs> and uh, you know, a little callous towards me with this whole beer I, thing, I think. I apologize. I'm sorry. You're right. I should be kinder. I will I will pick a nice sweet cider. For our next outing. When you say cider, do you mean beer? It's going to be a beer. <laughs> ah, come on, man! Maybe I'll, I'll pick something. I'll pick like a... Oh, what about a chocolate milk stout? Have is you ever it, had chocolate milk stout? Is, it's is pretty beer. good. Here's the thing. I have tried every single beer you could possibly try, right? I'm and no find, matter what I'm they call them on the front the of the bottle, no matter what they say the notes are, no matter what they say, like whether it's lemony or citrusy or whether it's full-bodied or if it's dark or if it's light or it's this or that, it all tastes the same, man. It's not true at all. It is not true at all. It's it all tastes completely different. It, you all That's are... Right. You know what, Jinx? I think... Yourselves. Look, we've had, we've had fun tonight, I think. Have we? Have you had fun? Have you not had fun? It was everything aside from the whole, you know, beer drinking. Sure. All right. I will well, say this: I'm not, and you know, not for nothing. I'm just throwing this out there for uh, for your next episode. You know, which will be uh, actually what will it be? If I'm doing Horror of Dracula, the next one should be Revenge of Frankenstein, right? Uh oh, are we just going to do that? Go in order. I like that. Yeah, why not? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's funny then that you're going to wind up probably with the bulk of the Frankenstein movies and I'll get stuck with uh, the franchise. I don't really care. Ah, that's not true because we'll have, well, I mean, we both talk during both of them. You know, it's not like I dominated the conversation 
or anything. Or did I? Paul. Did I too much? No, I t- not at I t- all. T- but, but, you know, this, this show is, I'm just going to throw this out there. The show is called Getting Hammered with Hammer, and I'm not hammered, and I don't think you are either. So I'm, I'm, I'm not. Saying, I'm just. I'm just saying. So you're we, saying I failed? I failed the first episode. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> we need to step it up when it comes to alcohol content. Okay. God forbid, okay. maybe a All little right. bit of paste. Okay. You know. You know. You know. You're asking for like a dangerous situation because there are some high alcohol content beers, and they they taste only stronger. So, oh, okay. I have some ideas. All right, fine. Yeah, I'll step it up. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, folks, that was the first getting hammered with Hammer. Uh, that is a, again, this is a supplementary series to Scream Addicts. We're going to be dropping every once in a while. The next episode we're going to be doing is Horror of Dracula. Keep an eye on the Scream Addicts Twitter feed. That's at Scream Addicts. And we are going to let you know when these episodes are going to be dropping. We're going to be <laughs> letting you know what you need to pick up at your local liquor store. And we'll let you know what the uh, game rules are before the episode drops so you can uh, hop in and play along with us. And God. God willing, you'll have something better to drink than what I did tonight. Now, it was Paul, delicious. You're wrong. Do you have any final parting thoughts on the curse of Frankenstein? Ah, oh, man, it's it's one of my favorite Hammer horror films. Um, I think it sets the stage for everything Hammer is going to deliver. Um, it's Peter Cushing's first big starring role in a film um, and proof that he was one of the great actors that genre cinema has ever seen. Um, And hopefully this episode encourages at least one person who's never seen it to give it a go, drink a few beers and have a great time uh, with, uh, with hammer. Drink a few beers. A few beers, more than three. <laughs> all right, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode. We hope uh, we were entertaining. I think we probably were to an extent. You know, maybe just Paul punishing me was enough. I don't know. But in any case, we I hope to see you back here funny. during the next episode. Thank you all so much, and um, have a great weekend.